Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 54, Pope Hormistus. That's a name. It is a name. Hormistus. It is a name that has some unique qualities to that we're going to get to in a couple minutes. But first, we have a birth year. Oh, yeah. It has been a while since we've seen one of those. So we definitely have to jump in on that because, ooh. Hormistus was born in 450 in Frusino, which is modern-day Frosinone in Lazio, south of Rome, and he was likely born to a wealthy family that had seemed to be of some sort of honor and note, and his father's name was Justus. His name, however, Hormistus, opens up a little bit of a debate, because historian Geoffrey Richards, in his book the Popes and the Papacy in the Early Middle Ages, postulates that the name probably indicates that he was ethnically Persian through his mother's side, since we know that Justus is a very Roman name, and that his name was probably an homage to one of the Persian kings or royal family members of the Sassanid Persian dynasty called Hormizd, and that's H-O-R-M-I-Z-D. It's unclear exactly which Hormizd we're talking about here because there are six kings and two princes that have the name Hormizd. So when I'm looking to find out exactly who he might be named after, this was a bit of a journey that I went on. Well, it could just be all of them. It could be all of them. Jeffrey Richards banks on it being the exiled Prince Hormizd, who was the brother-in-law of King Shapur II who, by the way, is probably one of the most impressive historical figures ever, and if we had a reason to digress on him more, I totally would, because he's very fascinating. But I also consulted Trevor from the History of Persia podcast, who added that this particular Hormizd, this exiled prince, ended up, for some reason, a Christian martyr. So... Maybe that gives us a little bit of a tangential tie to why he might be named this. So thank you, Trevor, for the help on that one. That's kind of an interesting point. We have a little bit of a tie-in as to why a very Christian family might be naming their child after a Persian leader. The Encyclopedia Iranica agrees with this, suggesting that it is the exiled prince, and goes one step further by suggesting that Hormid's son... This one we're talking about, his son, also called Hormizd, was absorbed into the Roman elite while in exile. And from this line, Pope Hormistus is probably descended. That's why you wanted that book. This is one of the reasons I wanted that book. Oh, and there's more in this episode of why I want that book. And we got that book. We did get that book. We're going to make thank yous at the end about that book. So... But yeah, if this is true, then he comes from a very well-off and notable family, like descendant of royalty somewhere else. So we also know that Hormistus was not one of our enter the church early, have a long career, become pope kind of person, because it's very probable that he had a career before the church in law, and he definitely was married with a family. Law. Yeah, he was probably a lawyer. We know for sure he had at least one son for certain, because this son, Silvarius, will go on to be one of our future popes. How dare. More genealogy. <laughs> He's not the next pope. We've got a handful of popes to get to before then. And, and yeah, clearly this is not a disputed fact. This is very clear, like, Hormistus is the father of Silvarius. But this is not scandalous, because there's no suggestion that Hormistus left his family to join the church. It's basically well inferred that he was widowed before he joined the church, and he probably did that somewhere around the year 500, around the age of 50. So the first mention we hear of him, actually in the church, is in 502, when he served as a notary at the Synod when Symmachus returned to Rome. He was also definitely a supporter of Symmachus, and soon became one of his most prominent attendants. He was also made a cardinal deacon by Symmachus sometime before 514, and he certainly made an impression on the bishops around him, 
as evidenced by the Bishop of Pavia, Enodius, and we know this because of two letters that he wrote to Hormistus, and he compliments him for his piety and distinguished reputation, commenting that he believed confidently that Hormistus would be Pope one day. These are Enodius epistles 287 and 290. These letters, by the way, are not just like Pope crush letters to say hi like we've seen in the past. They actually had a purpose. They were trying to get Pope Hormistus to help him get back some money and a couple horses that he'd lent to Pope Symmachus. So, hey, I know you're in good with the Pope. He owes me some money. Could you help me out here? Money and horses. Money and horses. What you doing, Pope? Do you need those? <laughs> yeah, why are you borrowing money and horses? I don't know, maybe it was during his time when he was forced to be outside of the city or something. Who knows? But yeah, so Enodius has given the Pope some money and he's not getting it back. So I tried to actually get a good quote about this from the letters, but the sources are either in Latin or in French. So I'm generally reading them through a translator which isn't always exact. So when I punched it through the translator, I literally got the sentence, make me come, because it translated the first half of the sentence and not the second. I think Enodius was a fan of Hormistus, but probably not that much. <laughs> no, that's not the right inference there. It's spelled exactly as that sentence would imply. So... Cum, C-U-M, is definitely a Latin word, <laughs> that's what came out of my translator and made my day. So <laughs> that's the new level of Pope crush letters, I guess. Horny for popes here. Very. Can you get back my horses and my money and make me come? <laughs> that's a lot of requests. One at a time, please. Anyways, Hormistus was elected to be the new pope on July 20th of 514. Although the election wasn't unanimous, almost all of the sources comment on what a peaceful election it was, without controversy, you know, which it very well could have been, considering the disastrous division of Symmachus's papacy and the Laurentian anti-papacy, and the fact that there are still members of the Laurentian faction kicking around who'd never really accepted Symmachus to be their pope. But for whatever reason, they're pretty happy to accept Hormistus to be the new pope. And the first thing that Hormistus does after being elected is to fully and formally end the Laurentian schism by ensuring that all of the Laurentian supporters were received back into communion and that they were reconciled with whatever church they had originally come from. So peace was achieved relatively easily under him. Where's the novations to be like, I hate this? Well. Remember that other big schism that was happening at the time? We've just resolved one schism, the Laurentian schism, but there's also the Acacian schism. Oh, yeah, that's right. The diptychs. The diptychs, yes. And it has been at a stalemate through our last couple popes, you know. Anastasius had tried to reconcile the divide with Constantinople by recognizing the sacramental acts of Acacius which had been too conciliatory for the hardliners in Rome, and he ended up in hell. And then Symmachus couldn't really do anything about it because of the Laurentian schism. But now there's a relatively agreeable man in the papacy, and Rome's doing okay. And on top of all of that, Emperor Anastasius, who'd been making things really, really difficult with his aggressive Henoticon push, might suddenly have some new motivation for compromise. And this is due to a Moesian military cavalry commander called Vitalian, who was actively leading a rebellion against Anastasius at this point. He had won Thrace, Scythia Minor, and Moesia, and the armies of Huns and Bulgars over to his side, and he'd already defeated Anastasius's nephew, Hypatius, in battle. Vitalian had a number of reasons for rebelling against the emperor, but by all accounts, the fact that Anastasius was favoring Myophysites and Monophysites and the Henoticon was one of his primary reasons because Vitalian is a staunch Orthodox supporter. And this gained him a lot of popular support, you know, from Orthodox citizens who were unhappy with the ongoing persecution and this whole Henoticon thing. 
So Vitaly enmarched his army, which may have been up to 60,000 strong, straight to Constantinople and set up for a siege. Then, since it was clear that he definitely had the upper hand, he made his demands to the emperor. Look, I will siege you out and we can do this the hard way, or you can just acquiesce to my demands. And here they are. A. He wanted to be restored to the office of distributing grain and rations to his Thracian army. So, something a little bit more personal. B. Restore and recognize the canons of the Council of Chalcedon as orthodoxy. And C. Go and reconcile with the Pope. Bring him horses. <laughs> well, you know, Hormistus might have liked the horses. He wouldn't have to borrow them from anybody. It's true. Anastasius was pretty much backed into a corner at this point, and he was forced to at least try to make some effort. So he agrees to the demands and writes a letter to Pope Hormistus. This letter, dated December 28th of 514, cordially invites the Pope to attend a synod to discuss reconciliation, scheduled for July 1st of 515 in Heraclea in Thrace. And this letter is approved by Vitalian, who wanted to actually read it before the emperor sent it off. It gets the go-ahead, so it's sent off to the Pope. Two weeks later, Anastasius wrote another letter to the Pope, this one January 12th of 515. And since this one wasn't being proofread by Vitalian, it is distinctively cooler and a lot less mollifying. So, obviously Anastasius wasn't super keen on making this reconciliation happen. And this is probably about the time that he's starting to think that maybe he didn't have to uphold all of his promises to Vitalian if he just appeared to be trying to make it happen. So this second letter somehow reaches Rome before the first letter. So the first news that Pope Hormistus gets that the emperor wants to have the synod is the passive-aggressive letter rather than the letter that has all the courtesy. So, you know, he's getting a salty letter from the difficult emperor. Despite this, however, Hormistus wrote back to the emperor with a letter on April 4th, delighted to accept the potential of peace. Sure, the emperor's letter might have been salty as hell, and Hormistus makes it clear that he doesn't feel that a synod is really necessary because the decisions of his predecessors represented true orthodoxy and primal authority of the successors of Peter, of course. But he was nonetheless happy to oblige with a synod if that would readmit those Eastern Hanoticon-embracing heretics back to the proper faith. What a passive-aggressive letter. <laughs> well, I mean, think about the one he got, right? It was, he got the really, really, like, not, you know, not at all into it, half-assed letter. And he's like, I am delighted. Let's do that. Let's just make that happen and get this done with. The first letter that Anastasius wrote, the really nice one, arrives in May, but by that point they're already in negotiations, so that letter carrier got held up. So a follow-up letter from Hermistus was sent to Anastasius, dated July 8th, announcing that a papal embassy was on its way to him in Constantinople, a week after the intended synod, which was supposed to be in Heraclea, not in Constantinople, so... Anastasius has kind of gone through this half-assed effort of setting up this little synod in Heraclea, and then a week after that is all being called and set up, he gets a letter that, oh, I'm just going to send an embassy to you instead. Letters are problematic. Yeah, this is not the age of instant messages. If only they had the instant message. Might have saved a lot of things. So the bishops who had actually assembled in Heraclea, as originally planned, couldn't actually do anything, and they dissolved their meeting without decisions, decrees, or result, right? They, they're just like, oh, the other side of this argument isn't here, I guess we just dissolved. And this is a little bit odd. We can't absolutely be sure why Hormistus waited, but we do know that before he sent his legates, he convened a synod in Rome to ensure that the whole of the church was on board with what he was doing, so there wasn't another Anastasius II situation cropping up, so... Not secretly a heretic. Yeah, so this could be the reason for the delay, but there isn't really a clear codified example of why that would be. Either way, it doesn't matter. The papal legates are on their way now. They are going to Constantinople, and they are, again, Bishop Enodius of Pavia, 
Bishop Fortunatus of Catina, Venatius the priest, Vitalis the deacon, and Hilarius the notary, who may not have been a party pooper. But he's a notary who's hilarious. But there's just all these comments in the margins. He probably fancies himself like a stand-up comic, and this is his, like, way in, because he notarizes all these very important letters to things like the emperor and the pope, so someone's gonna see it and chuckle and then give him his big break. Yeah, he's drawing dicks on the side, yeah. So they arrive in Constantinople on August 1st to present the emperor with a letter outlining the pope's requirements for a proper reconciliation. So... According to Pope Hormistus, in order for the East to be brought back into communion, these are the five things he required. One, the emperor must make a public declaration of accepting the Council of Chalcedon and the Tome of Leo. Two, the Eastern bishops would be required to do the same and must anathematize Nestorius, Eutyches, Dioscorus, Iloris, Peter Mongus, Peter the Fuller, and Acacius, and anyone who remained an adherent. Three, any bishop or cleric who had been exiled during the Acacian Schism should be recalled for their case to be heard by the Apostolic See. And four, any Orthodox exiles who had maintained adherence to Chalcedon and Rome should be the first to be recalled and heard. And finally, five, any bishop who had participated in the persecution of Orthodox clerics should be sent to Rome to be judged. So, he's setting his standards and his expectations high, which is great for the hardliners of Rome, but he's clearly making an effort here for conciliation and to put the schism to bed, so this is looking good for both sides in Rome. And remember, Anastasius only committed to having a discussion about reconciling in a half-assed way and only because he was forced to, but Hormistus is taking it and running with it, setting down an exact parameter of what was going to go down. It was going to be the emperor and the whole of the East submitting to the Pope and orthodoxy or nothing. So Anastasius is a little taken aback here when the gauntlet is laid before him. He is nowhere near willing to agree to all of that up front. But he also had to maintain appearance of being invested in the effort to end the schism or he was going to face the wrath of Vitalian. So he kind of prevaricates around with the legates without giving them a firm answer and sends them away back to Rome with a letter to Hormistus that doesn't commit to anything at all. It's a super evasive and not very reassuring letter. And then, once the envoys returned to Rome, Anastasius sent his own embassy to Rome because he had a cunning plan. With these civil officials that he sent, Anastasius sent another prevaricating letter for Pope Hormistus, the July 16th letter, which, you know, oh yeah, just trying to work out the details, we'll, we're going to get to this really soon, just kind of all over the place. But also, a letter for the Senate, dated July 28th, that invited the Senate to conspire with him against the Pope. I mean, surely the Senate didn't want to be in alignment with a Pope getting too big for his britches, right? This is what he thinks. The Senate, though, are not buying what Emperor Anastasius is selling, and they're not part of the Empire anymore, so they're not beholden to his command. And King Theoderic intended to maintain a loyal relationship with Hormistus. All sources indicate that the Pope and the King had a pretty good relationship, and they will maintain that throughout the entire papacy, so the Senate's not turning around and doing that. Of course, Hormistus found out about this letter, considering the Senate was on his side, and responded to the letter that had actually been addressed to him, still maintaining his initial enthusiasm for peace, but remaining very firm on his position and his demands. Like, Emperor, I see you trying to undermine me, and look how well that went for you. This is still the terms. I mean, it probably also helped that at the same time that the Senate was refusing to conspire with Anastasius, several Eastern bishops from the Balkans are turning away from Constantinople to return to communion with Rome anyways. We know this because Pope Hormistus wrote about it in a letter to Bishop Avitus in Vienne, reporting their return to communion, specifically naming John of Nicopolis the Archbishop of Epirus, as having first broken with Constantinople to reconcile with Rome, 
followed by bishops in Scythia, Illyria, and the Dardani, which are in that Illyria-slash-Thrace region. We could assume that the bishops were probably inspired by Vitalian's rebellion and now saw an open way to bring themselves back to orthodoxy, but that bit is at least pure speculation on my part. And let's not forget that at this time, Anastasius's perspective didn't represent a whole and unified Constantinople either, because many of the bishops within the region had taken the opportunity of when the papal legates had been present in Constantinople to try and make connections with them and quietly support the moves towards reconciliation. And because of all this side success, Hormistus set a second papal embassy, again, Bishop Anodius and Bishop Peregrinus of Mycenaeum, to Constantinople. And this time, they bring the formula of Hormistus. Is that like a Tome of Leo thing? It is, it is very much like a Tome of Leo thing. It is a confession of faith that the Eastern bishops who had reconciled could sign that reaffirms the canons of Chalcedon, excommunicates Nestorianism and Monophysitism, and also heavily declares the primacy of the Pope. Like, literally, the first line of the formula is, the first condition of salvation is to keep the norm of the true faith and in no way deviate from the established doctrine of the fathers. For it is impossible that the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, should not be verified. And their truth has been proved by the course of history, for in the apostolic see, the Catholic religion has always been kept unsullied. This formula is going to be a big deal for the church, and will be one of the most cited pieces of church writing for a long time all the way up to the First Vatican Council in the 19th century for this very, very firm assertion of papal primacy and for other reasons that we'll get to in a moment. It is definitely Tome of Leo-style moment. But the second embassy bringing the formula didn't have much chance of a success with the emperor. And when they arrived, the emperor tried to bribe them to go against this pope and obviously failed, so he refuses to enter any real discussions with them. The legates being stonewalled with the emperor, but knowing that there are Rome-friendly bishops in Constantinople, had Hormistus's formula circulated to the people in secret, urging them to reunite with Rome despite whatever the emperor was doing. Now, unfortunately, the emperor found out about this, and the legates were apprehended and forcibly removed from the city and sent back on a boat to Italy. The Liber Pontificalis tells us of this moment, the emperor, hot with anger, sent them forth by dangerous place and embarked them on a ship in peril of death. This incident coincidentally marked the beginning of kind of a turning tide. Shortly after this, Vitalian and his rebelling troops were defeated by Anastasius's forces, with many of his major supporters killed and Vitalian himself forced into hiding and he's really not going to be able to regroup and fight again. So the rebellion that was responsible for the initial efforts to make peace with Rome was over and not coming back. So Anastasius is feeling fat and sassy at this point. He's like, yeah, I got this. It's all mine now. So he writes to the Pope on July 11th of 517 to inform him abruptly that he was breaking off any and all negotiations to end the schism Neener, neener, you smell, suck it, your mom, etc., etc., and went right back to persecuting any of the bishops he could find that had cooperated with the Pope or the legates. <sighs> yeah, he's kind of a dick. Well, let's these people be emperor. <laughs> well, <laughs> who voted for him? Rob and Jamie, tell us all about it. <laughs> Who did this? Who do I go blame? Uh, probably the Praetorian Guard. It's always the Praetorian Guard. They either murder the last emperor and install one of their own, or some derivative thereof. But then, on July 9th of 518, almost exactly a year after sending this letter, Emperor Anastasius dies in the middle of a crazy storm. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. What was he doing? Well, what he was doing or where he was is unclear, but this is what the Liber Pontificalis tells us about it. Anastasius, in rage, wrote to Pope Hormistus and said, among other impious things, 
We wish to command you not to lay commands upon us. Then, struck by a blow from the divine thunderbolt, Anastasius perished. Why was he outside? He's getting fried up real good, I guess. <laughs> or was he in his house? That would be some real divine intervention right there. That'd be amazing. Like, you could not deny it at that point, could you? No. It'd be amazing. I mean, if we look at the liver pontificalis at its word, this dude was killed by lightning in another act of God's will, just like Pope Anastasius. So, you know, you can kind of start to see why Dante maybe got them confused. Too many Anastasiuses. Too many acts of God. Also, not the only emperor to be killed by lightning. What are they doing? <laughs> I need to Why? Why are they... <sighs> I suppose they don't have the, like, don't stand outside in a thunderstorm warning that comes up on the TV. Yeah, no, they don't have that. And the other emperor who was killed by lightning, there are actual, like, more sources than just the, you know, not credible liver pontificalis that suggests this. Like, he might have actually been struck by lightning. Why are you outside? <laughs> Get back in your tent. Actually, that probably wouldn't help very much, would it? Hmm, no, not, I guess not if you're out in the field. In a tent. Yeah, I think I think Emperor Karis was. I'm gonna have to look that back up, but So the Orthodox Church at this point must have definitely felt the divine favor shining upon them at this moment, because right after Anastasius dies, Timotheus, who is the Hanoticon supporting bishop of Constantinople, also dies. Did he get struck by lightning? He does not get an exciting death. No, he just dies. So the successors of both the emperor and the bishop of Constantinople are both orthodox men. So Emperor Anastasius was succeeded by Justin I, and Timotheus was succeeded by John II, also known as John of Cappadocia. Everything's coming up, Millhouse. <laughs> Couldn't have been a better time for that reference. <laughs> so... Justin, as the new emperor, went to work immediately to reverse pretty much all of Anastasius's policies and accepted all of Pope Hormistus's original demands, except the one about sending bishops to Rome for trial. He accepts all the rest, though, because he wants to bring Constantinople back into communion. He even removes Acacius's name from the diptychs of Constantinople. <laughs> and for good measure... He also removes the name of Emperor Anastasius and Zeno. <gasps> Nobody gets to be in the- How long is the dip-dips now? They keep removing things. There's just a bunch of, like, cross-out written back in, cross-out written back in. Or I just imagine, like, they rip out the page, like, and then it's just this tattered-up book. It probably totally is by this point, and, and we're so not done with the dip-dips yet. This, this continues to be a thing throughout future popes, but- the new bishop of Constantinople, John, accepted and signed that formula of Hermistus, and also held a small synod to bring the bishops in agreement to reunite with Rome. So they send an imperial legate back to the Pope, inviting him to come to Constantinople so that the unification of the church could be formally reestablished. Hermistus is thrilled, and although he doesn't come in person, he sends the bishop Germanus of Capua the priest Blandus, and two deacons called Felix and Dioscorus, and a notary called Peter. They are really tired of Valerius's dick drawings. I bet that Blandus's sermons are great. He's the most energetic and charismatic <laughs> creature. <laughs> that is my next D&D &D character. <laughs> Blandus the priest of, I'll make him a bard, but a priest. There's, there's, there's a way to do that, I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you should make a cleric bard. I don't know if you should multi-class that way. But I'm not that much of an expert on multi-classing. Yeah, I'll just store that one in my back pocket with my stabby nun. I'm sensing a trend here. <laughs> so, Germanus, Blandus... Felix, Dioscorus, and Peter all arrive in Constantinople and ensure and oversee the acceptance of the formula of Hermistus, which wasn't very difficult at this point. So, the official reunion was ratified on Holy Thursday, March 28th of 519, 
in the Cathedral of Constantinople. I am going to clarify this is not the Hagia Sophia. It has not been built yet. But it is a very public, solemn ceremony that concluded with the signing of the formula of Hermistus. And that's it. Peace has happened. The occasion schism is over. It's done. So Pope Hermistus has now ended two schisms. Cool. He's doing really well. Why is he not a great? Uh, because they, they really reserve their greats when it comes to popes. He's got his own little formulae, and he has gotten rid of schisms. He's doing I so know, well. he's doing so good. And he's not even done doing so good yet. Because just as the legates are about to leave Constantinople, one more issue is brought to them by a group of Scythian monks led by John Maxentius, who are known as the Theopassites. We're not going to get into the whole world of Theopassitism right now, since it will only play a small role, but it boils down to this theological thought that, quote, God suffered in the flesh during the crucifixion of Christ because of Christ's divine nature and the fact that Christ is God. So the easiest way to sum this up is if you asked a Theopassite, was the crucifixion of Christ a crucifixion of God? They would say yes. Whereas at this point in time, the Orthodox would say it's only Christ's human nature that suffered because, you know, two natures, hypostatic union, whole and perfect without division or confusion or separation. So the Theopassites wanted to have the formula, quote, one of the Trinity suffered in the flesh, recognized as dogmatically correct. The Emperor Justin had accepted this formula as a way to kind of ensure a reconciliation with monophysitism, but the papal legates refused to offer that confirmation because it was implied a huge potential for misunderstanding and interpretation. But the monks are undaunted and actually come to Rome with the intention of bringing this issue directly before the Pope. And while they were at it, they also reached out to the African bishops of Sardinia, hoping to get support. Hormistus refused to validate their formula for the same reasons that his legates had, indicating that while the statement wasn't exactly false, the Council of Chalcedon and the Tome of Leo were sufficient dogma on their own. They do not need this amendment at all. Just accept it the way it is. Around the same time, the African bishop Possessor appealed to the Pope on behalf of the monks under him over advice on the church's outlook of the Bishop Faustus of Riez in Provence, who was writing theology that definitely seemed Pelagian. No, not Pelagianism. Yeah, but it seems that at this time, Hormistus was pretty high on peace, and he was higher on peace than he was on rehashing the whole Pelagian issue. So he turns around to the monks of Africa and condemns them for their quarrelsome spirit, and declares that he's not going to condemn Faustus's writings outright. Like, whatever was doctrinally orthodox should be preserved, and what was iffy should be rejected, and they could figure it out without having a fight about it. It's a little bit harsh compared to most of his letters, and it seems a little bit out of character for him, so maybe he was just tired. He just ended two major schisms. He doesn't want to see another fight happen. He wanted to ensure that the church had, you know, a unified understanding of orthodoxy. And so, you know, he realizes there are still a little bit of issues, so he goes to work with this a little bit. He commissions a Latin translation of all the canons of the Eastern churches, who still at this time used Greek rather than Latin, and an updated edition of the Gelasian Decree, prepared by Dionysius Exegus, a monk originally from Scythia who was serving in Rome. So he's like, look, people are still fighting about the stuff. Let's just translate everything into one language, update it all, and make it look good. The Liber Pontificalis also tells us, quote, he found Manichaeans and shattered them with a multitude of blows and sent them into exile and destroyed their books with the fire before the doors of the Basilica of Constantine. Yeah, no more secret raves for the Manichaeans, I guess. Out, out, out. He also decorated St. Peter's Basilica with many gifts bestowed on the church by Clovis, the King of the Franks, and Emperor Justin. So he's you know, enriching the wealth and the magnificence of the church at this time. And finally, during his papacy, another great shift occurred in that King Thrasimund, who is the Vandal King, 
currently ruling over the Vandal Kingdom in North Africa, dies in 523. We've talked about the Vandal Kingdom quite a bit lately because all of those Orthodox Christians have been exiled and heavily persecuted in the area back since Pope Felix III in episode 50, since, you know, the foundation of that kingdom there. They're Aryan? Yeah, they are Aryan, and so they are persecuting the Orthodox Christians very, 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 very violently. So with Thrasimund's death, the persecutions were brought to an end, and Hormistus was able to reconnect with Thrasimund's successor, Hilderic, who might have actually been a Catholic, but at least favored Catholicism because his mother was Catholic. So they're able to come to an accord, and the persecutions aren't happening anymore. So really, this is piece number three that Hormistus is scoring for the church. But you know, after a long papacy, he's got to go to sleep. So Hormistus died on August 6th of 523 of natural causes at the age of 73. And we can say that because we know he when he was born. That's a good age to whatever drift away. It's pretty good. It's it's pretty good, you know, after a long and hard papacy. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, but like the others, it was not one that received the great transfer treatment when the new basilica was built. However, the text on his tomb was preserved by Giovanni Battista de Rossi when it was uncovered in the mid-19th century, so it was never entirely lost. And we actually have his epitaph that was composed by his son when his son became Pope. And I can read it to you. And we're going to have so many more of these coming up soon, which is great because I found this amazing book by Wendy J. Reardon called The Death of the Popes, Comprehensive Accounts, Including Funerals, Burial Places, and Epitaphs. And it is so cool and I love it. And right now I'm using like the Google preview but once we can actually access our Patreon sources again, I'm going to buy it because it's like 10 bucks for the digital copy, and I want it so bad. So, quote, Although my verses, Father, are unworthy of your sepulcher, and though your celebrated faith has no need for eulogy, accept, however, these praises to be read by a pilgrim who, for the love of Peter, will be coming here from the ends of the world. You healed the body of your native country lacerated by schism, and restored the torn-off limbs to their proper places. Greece, defeated by holy power, submitted herself to you, happy in having regained her lost faith. Africa, captive for many years, rejoices over the bishops she owes to your prayers. I, Silvarius, have recorded this, though it causes me sorrow, in order that, engraved on a tombstone, it may defy age. Pretty nice, kind of touching sentiment from Pope son to Pope father. So that's Hormistus, and now we need to rate him. Papatum infallium. He's going to score big here. He brought peace. Peace. He brought the Acacian schism to an end after 35 years of trying. He got rid of that. Constantinople's back in communion. The Eastern Church is mostly reunited with Orthodoxy. The primacy of the Pope has been signed in a confession of faith supported by the emperor in the formula of Hormistus. The reconciliation is still considered one of the church's greatest victories and will later be characterized as bringing the East into, quote, submission and solidifying papal prestige. Like, this is easily the most pro-Roman, pro-Pope church document signed ever by the Eastern churches, ever. Like, from here on in, we won't see something like this. That formula is cited over 13 centuries later in the First Vatican Council as proof of papal infallibility. On the bad side, I guess we can say that monophysitism isn't over and never really will be because there are still monophysite and miaphysite churches even today, so I don't know if we can count that against him. But really, he's overall considered one of the most successful popes, even if... You know, he really benefited from when other people died. You know, sometimes you just gotta... Yeah, sometimes you gotta take advantage, right? Oh, and he also has a very, very large writing corpus. Over a hundred of his letters have survived, kind of like Pope Leo, and most of them are preserved by the Collectio Avalana, so... Pretty cool. I like that one. Really, like, this man is very, very successful and does a lot for the papacy. Ends two schisms. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I kind of want to max him out. 
but I don't know how you're feeling. You can give him a 10. I was thinking somewhere between a 9 or a 10. So if you're going to give him a 10, I'll give him a 9. Just because I don't think he's like the most popey pope. He didn't defend Rome from an invasion or anything yet. But it's pretty, pretty good. So a 19 in Papatum and Valium. I like it. Everybody can't defend Rome from invasions. It's true. We will see that they definitely cannot do that. But, you know, something holds me back from giving him a full 20. That's fair. I don't know. 19's pretty good. Fructus prohibitum. You could make something passive-aggressive out of the fact that he sent delegates to Constantinople after the scheduled Heraclius Synod, but... It's not really anything. Yeah, no, being passive-aggressive isn't really... Yeah, it's not really super scandally. It might be bad behavior, but, like, look how well he did. Anastasia started it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wish there was... I want to give him lots of points, so I wish I could give him at least something in this category, but, mm, not so much. Seculari impactum. I mean, he has this ongoing passive-aggressive conflict with Emperor Anastasius. But his relationship with Emperor Justin turns the whole of Constantinople from schismatic to orthodox. So this has a major impact on the population there. And he made Rome happy without being too hard or too soft. So it's pretty good. Peace. I'm leaning towards like a, you know, a seven. Yeah, you can give him a seven. I'm going to give him a nine again because I just want to recall for a moment how violent the Laurentian schism was. Oh, yeah. And, like, so he made that, even the last little vestiges of it, he made that not a thing anymore. So that gives him a 16 in that category. Fossium Sanctus. Okay. All right. We have some things to look at. We're going to judge on his, the traditional one that we normally judge on. This one's a little bit special. <laughs> What's he doing? He's just kind of, he's got kind of a, they, they've made a texture behind it to look kind of extra special and glowy. There's something about this that I just love. I don't know. He just, he's, he's doing that puppy dog eye. He, I see, when I look at it, I thought of like a cat. Oh, yeah. When they look up at the corner of the ceiling, like he has something on his mind, but there's something very prestigious about him he doesn't look super imposing and he doesn't have that kind of gromp that we've seen the other popes have there's just something about it i i just love he's looking at a ghost in the corner yeah he definitely has that like when cats look at demons on the ceiling look <laughs> but it's just so popey it's real popey and i love it is that your papal baseline they have to look at demons on the ceiling <laughs> No, I mean, you could also take it as being, like, very serene and contemplative and all those things, but I just, you know, demons on the ceiling. He's like, how can I make peace with them? <laughs> so I'm going to give him an eight. I really like it. Yeah, I also really like this picture, and I'm not entirely sure how to explain it. It does look like it's been put through, like, an Instagram filter. It's totally, he is a very Instagrammable pope. <laughs> So I will match your eight. Okay. Ooh, he's going to get a full-fledged four in this category. But there's more to look at. So here's the bad artist. We're just going to skim by this one real quickly. A it, it's a Jafif! <laughs> oh, boy. It's a Jafif. It makes you download it. Oh, what? He's got a terrible tonsure. It's, like, craggy and raggly, and I hate it. And it's just another call and mockery. It's like someone put a mop and then cut it. Yeah, but we also have something kind of cool, because we have a carved marble cameo. Oh, that's interesting. That man looks nothing. No, he's looking at the, the maybe he thinks the cherubs holding him <laughs> our up are demons. <laughs> but it's clearly the artist's style, because even the cherubs have some sort of weird... Fry their demons. <laughs> They are. They kind of look like Biff from Back to the Future. They're they're demon cherubs. I'm all for it. It's just kind of neat. I like it. We don't get this kind of, you know, it's a sign of majesty when we're getting this extra really cool art bits. So Demon cherubs. Demon cherubs. Tempest Pontificus. July 20th, 514 to August 6th, 523. Nine years, which is a score of 2.25. All right. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! 
Yes, he is a saint. His feast day is August 6th. And he is a patron saint of something. Is it staring at demons? Well, maybe the people he is a patron saint of stare at demons because he is the patron saint of grooms and stable boys. Oh, what? Oh, is that? Are we hearkening back to the horses? What's happening? <laughs> I didn't. Those, those Simicus took the horses. Yeah, <laughs> but he was asked to give them back. <laughs> I mean, that might make sense because. At this point, there's only really speculation as to why he is the patron saint of grooms and stable boys, and it's because they think he was initially confused with another Hormistus who was a military general under Trajan, and this Hormistus had quipped to the emperor that he wanted to build a colossal horse statue, but then he would have to build an appropriately sized stable for it. So this joke from the age of Trajan confused with our Pope man, maybe why he's the patron saint of grooms and stable boys. I don't, it doesn't, there's no connection there. He's definitely the patron saint of grooms and stable boys because he got the make me come letter from <laughs> Yeah, that's the only reason. I agree with that. But hey, he, he actually gets official patronage, so woohoo! Are you ready for his total score? Yeah. He's joining the 40 Club. With a score of 42.25. Not bad, not bad. Pretty good. I like it. I like it. So, now I have to ask you, is he papally enough and pizzazzy enough and worth the effort of a papal bull? Yeah, let's give him a bull because the groomsmen need to do something. <laughs> okay, that kind of bull. He gets a literal papal bull this time. I mean, yeah, I, I wanted to give it to him. This this is when, when you look at popes and you think most significant popes in history, his name comes up a lot. So, yeah. Congratulations, Hormistus. You receive a literal papal bull. With that, we have thanks to make. So we need to thank Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium as always as well as Mega Dumbcast for shouting out and binging our show and really, really enjoying it. And we need to thank Carlos for the book, that papal genealogy book, is now in our possession. And you are the best, 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 and the truest of circular friends. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so excited about it. I'll give it to you in October when I see you. Yes, if I need anything immediately from it, you can send me screenshots without looking at what it actually says. Don't read it, just send me this page. I also want to thank Lori Ankerson and Patricia Ann Knopp for finding cheaper copies for us to actually look at legitimately buying that were not $200 on Canadian Amazon, so... I'm still surprised at how little pages there are for how expensive this book is. Is it secretly a college textbook? Is that what this is? That is just how academic books generally roll. So, yeah, that's kind of a thing. And with that, don't run away quite yet, because if you're still listening to this episode, we are going to end with something special this week which will be Deacon Dad reading the Formula of Hormistus. So enjoy that. For now, this is our sign-off, so really, really enjoy that, because Deacon Dad is the best for reading for us. So thank you, and goodbye. Bye. Here's Deacon Dad with the Formula of Hormistus. The Formula of Hormistus. The first condition of salvation is to keep the norm of the true faith and in no way deviate from the established doctrine of the fathers. For it is impossible that the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, should not be verified. And her truth has been proved by the course of history. For in the apostolic see, the Catholic religion has always been kept unsullied. From this hope and faith, we by no means desire to be separated. And following the doctrine of the fathers, we declare anathema all heresies, and especially the heretic Nestorius, former bishop of Constantinople, who was condemned by the Council of Ephesus, by the blessed Celestine, bishop of Rome, and by the venerable Cyril, bishop of Alexandria. We likewise condemn and declare anathema Eutychus and Dioscorus, of Alexandria, who were condemned by the Holy Council of Chalcedon, 
which we follow and endorse. This council, followed by the Council of Nicaea, and preached the apostolic faith. And we condemn the assassin Timothy, surnamed Aloris, and also Peter of Alexandria, his disciple and follower in everything. We also declare anathema, their helper and follower, Acacius of Constantinople, a bishop once condemned by the apostolic see, and all those who remain in contact and company with them. Because this Acacius joined himself to their communion, he deserved to receive a judgment of condemnation similar to theirs. Furthermore, we condemn Peter of Antioch and all of his followers, together with the followers of all those mentioned above. Following, as we have said before, the apostolic see in all things and proclaiming all its decisions, we endorse and approve all the letters which Pope St. Leo wrote concerning the Christian religion. And so I hope I may deserve to be associated with you in the one communion which the Apostolic See proclaims, in which the whole, true, and perfect security of the Christian religion resides. I promise that from now on, those who are separated from the communion of the Catholic Church, that is, who are not in agreement with the Apostolic See, will not have their names read during the sacred mysteries. But if I attempt even the least deviation from my profession, I admit that, according to my own declaration, I am an accomplice to those whom I have condemned. I have signed this, my profession, with my own hand, and I have directed it to you, Armistus, the Holy and Venerable Pope of Rome. Oh.